Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. This article is from the Glasgow Times. Date 29th July 2022. From the Lifestyle section. Ivran Welsh's crime TV series hunts for Glasgow Tenement for season two filming in Deniston. By Nicole Mitchell. Creators of Irvin Welsh's crime TV drama are looking for Glasgow tenements ahead of filming in season two. Some residents in Deniston have received a letter from the production's location manager telling them they are looking for properties such as yours as a filming location. The letter states those who allow their home to be used will be paid a location fee, although the amount is not disclosed. Each property will be used for an average of one to two days when filming takes place from late August to late November. The letter read, I am the location manager for the second series of a TV drama to be filmed in West and Central Scotland towards the end of the year, entitled Crime. We are looking for properties such as yours, for which we would pay a location fee. It continued, Like the first series, which is available to stream on BritBox, the second season of Crime is a six-part police drama featuring characters from Trainspotting author Irvin Welsh's 2008 novel of the same title and based on his forthcoming novel, The Long Knives. With a script co-written by Welsh, Crime features a craft cast led by Dougray Scott, Ken Stott and Joanna Vanderham. Although the drama is set in Edinburgh, some filming for series one of Crime also took place in Glasgow. In May last year, crews were spotted shooting scenes at the Windford Estate in Mary Hill. That article was by Nicole Mitchell. This article is from the Glasgow Times, date 29th July 2022, from the Opinion section. Nicola Sturgeon's leadership has stood the test of time, by David Linden. The late Labour MP Tony Benn is famous for many things, but there is one speech in particular on leadership for which he will always be remembered and bears repeating. He said, I have divided politicians into two categories, the signposts and the weathercocks. The signpost says, this is the way we should go, and you don't have to follow them, but if you come back in 10 years' time, the signpost is still there. The weathercock hasn't got an opinion until they've looked at the polls, talked to the focused groups, discussed it with the spin doctors. 
And I've no time for weathercocks. I'm a signpost man. The modern Labour Party could do well to heed those words. Earlier this week, Keir Starmer sacked his Shadow Transport Minister, Sam Tarry, after he joined a picket line to support striking members of the Rail Maritime and Transport Workers Union at London Euston Railway Station. In a broadcast interview earlier that day, Mr Tarry had predicted his removal from the Labour front bench and defended his support for the strike, correctly asserting that he was standing on the right side of history. Sam Tarry is a signpost man. Keir Starmer, on the other hand. So desperate is Starmer to chase Tory votes that you can barely tell the two parties apart on policies such as Brexit and public spending. How is anyone supposed to know what the Labour Party of today stands for if they aren't prepared to stand up for ordinary workers? How far has Labour drifted from the central tenants on which they were founded? Keir Hardy must be burling in his urn in despair at his namesake. The leader of Unite the Union, Sharon Graham, this week said that Labour was becoming more and more irrelevant to ordinary working people, and she's not wrong. People need leadership which is rooted in values and principles. The electorate needs to know what you stand for if you want them to place their trust in you. The same is also true for the Conservatives, who have lost several by-elections in England due to disillusionment of traditional Tory voters. The thoroughly insipid leadership contest that we're all been subjected to has been a depressing spectacle of a policy by opinion poll and focus group. Whether it's throwing LGBT people under the bus, punching down on asylum seekers, or magicking up money as if they're contestants on Countdown being asked to pick a load of random numbers, both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss have proven nothing other than their weathercock status. That Tony Benn quote went on to say, although I disagreed with everything she did, Mrs Thatcher was a signpost. She said what she meant, meant what she said, did what she said she'd do if you voted for her. Despite Trust doing everything she can to pretend to be some sort of Marvel reimagining of the Iron Lady, she's really just a counterfeit plastic Margaret Thatcher action figure, batteries not included. Sunak has the batteries, but can't seem to boot up past his factory default settings and at least pretend to understand the human condition. How far removed and distant does this weathercock fight feel for those of us watching aghast from Scotland? The sight of these two people, people that Scotland will never vote for, battling it out for the Tory crown while ordinary people struggle with the cost of living catastrophe is fairly grotesque. And in a couple of years, we'll likely have to go through all this over again. Tony Benn is correct that weathercocks come and go, but that in 10 years time, the signpost is still there. That's why throughout all of this Westminster drama and misrule, Nicola Sturgeon's leadership has stood the test of time. 
First Minister for almost eight years and serving as Deputy First Minister for seven years before that, she has now seen off three Prime Ministers as well as countless Labour leaders. I bumped into Nicola earlier this week in Parkhead as she made an official visit to announce extra funding for targeted money and welfare advice services embedded in GP surgeries. She has never forgotten the day job, nor the importance of delivering policies grounded in the values and principles people have backed her on. This shouldn't be revolutionary. These are shared principles. We care about each other. We want to see children have the best start in life. We all want properly funded and resourced public services. And we believe that workers shouldn't be forced into food banks. Our core values underpin not only who we are, but also our aspirations for the future. We are incredibly lucky to have principled signpost leadership in Scotland. And we ought to heed the warnings from Westminster of what happens when those in positions of power become weathercocks. Truss, Starmer, Sunak have mistaken populism for popularity and it will be their political undoing. I agree with Tony Benn. We certainly do need a few more signposts and a lot fewer weathercocks. But Westminster shows no sign of changing. If we want direction in Scotland, we need to look closer to home. That article was by David Linden. This article is from The National, date 29th July 2022, from the Culture section. Scottish author Graeme McRae Burnett, humbled by Booker nomination and praise from Nicola Sturgeon by Craig Meehan. In 2020, Douglas Stewart became the second Scot in history to win the prestigious Booker Prize. It catapulted his name into the international spotlight while his book, Shuggy Bain, became a New York Times bestseller. Now, another Scottish author is in with a chance to scoop the elusive literary award and what comes with it. Graeme McRae Burnett was announced on Tuesday as one of the 13 long-listed authors for his critically acclaimed book, Case Study. The novel follows the story of a woman who seeks out a psychotherapist who she blames for the death of her sister. While it's not the first time Booker Prize judges have found themselves impressed by Burnett's work, his psychological crime thriller, His Bloody Project, was nominated in 2016, the author said he is, I absolutely did not expect to make the long list. He told The National, I knew Saraband Books, my publisher, was putting my book into contention, but there are upwards of 150 books going into the prize. And these are not just any 150 books. These are the books that every other publisher thinks that has the best chance of winning the booker. So you can't possibly expect it, but it's absolutely brilliant when it's happened. I'm thrilled. It feels like an amazing achievement. 
For your book to be considered worthy of this kind of accolade is very gratifying. Burnett said he felt humbled by the groundswell of support he received following his nomination. I think once it's public knowledge, and Nicola Sturgeon is tweeting her congratulations, and Ian Rankin and Val McDermott and other writers are being extremely supportive, especially in the Scottish writing community, I think that's when you really feel humbled. It's still a strange feeling for Burnett that hasn't quite sunk in, learning of the news while holidaying in Wester Ross. I feel a little bit insulated from it, he said. If I was home in Glasgow, I probably would have gone out for drinks with some friends and that would make it feel real, so I'm a little distant from it. Burnett said that as well as the public tweet congratulating him on the long list, the First Minister had messaged him privately to applaud his achievement. He said, Regardless of politics, Nicola Sturgeon is genuinely an incredible reader of novels and literature in general. She's very supportive of Scottish writers. I think to have a leading politician who genuinely cares about literature is a brilliant thing. For her to take the time to congratulate me, she's a busy woman, so it genuinely is amazing. The writer was born and brought up in Kilmarnock but moved when he left school to study film, TV and English literature at Glasgow University. Following his graduation, he taught English as a foreign language in Prague, France and Portugal. His last job before he published his first book at the age of 46 was a TV researcher for documentaries. But all through that time, he knew the written word was his true calling. All I've ever wanted to do in life was publish a novel, he said. By the time I was 40, I finished my TV job and felt like it was time to pursue what I want to do and wrote what would become The Disappearance of Adele Bedeau. Burnett's second book, His Bloody Project, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 2015, something he said proved to be a career and life-changing moment for him. It takes you into the eyeline of every bookshop in the country, of readers and of international publishers who are far more likely to publish your work. The book ended up being published in 20 languages. It gave me the opportunity of becoming a full-time writer. Burnett didn't stray too far from his home in the west of Glasgow to pen his award-winning novels. While most people go to the Mitchell Library to read, it's Burnett's de facto workplace. The author revealed that he's written the majority of his books at various floors of the famous Glasgow institution. I started going to the Mitchell when I was writing The Disappearance of Adele Bedeau. I wrote most of that on the second floor. Then when I was writing His Bloody Project, I wrote that on the fifth floor. Then Case Study, I wrote that entirely on the fourth floor. I can probably point you to the seats I actually use. While he may have two Booker nominations along with a wealth of other awards under his belt, the Scottish writer doesn't always feel there was a path in the literary world for him. He said, When I was 15 to 16, I started writing. I gave my English teacher some homework, about six or seven pages, and he told me he had never read anything like it before. 
I don't know if that was a compliment or not, but it made me feel really good, really encouraged. And then when I came up to Glasgow University, I showed the writer-in-residence my short stories, and he asked if I had thought of getting them published. Until that time, it never crossed my mind that someone like me could have stories published. I come from a middle-class background, I'm not underprivileged, but I didn't know that was a route that was possible for me. I had no idea how you go about it. Asked what's next, Burnett, who's currently on holiday, said he planned on getting a fish supper and heading to the beach. On the literary front, though, he's a third of the way through writing the last instalment of his Detective Gorsky trilogy, hoping to finish it by the end of the year. And he revealed a big new project is in the works. While he was tight-lipped on the details, he said he expects it will take around two to three years to complete. For now, though, he awaits to find out if he will follow 2015's triumph and make the Booker shortlist. We'll wait and see what happens with the Booker Prize, he said. But for me, just being able to continue to exist as a writer is a brilliant thing. That article was by Craig Meehan. This article is from The National, date 1st August 2022, from the News section. Fuel tax cut for UK drivers among lowest in Europe, by Joshua Searle. The fuel price cut in the UK is one of the lowest among European countries that have taken action against the soaring cost of petrol and diesel. Only Luxembourg has done less than the UK government out of 13 European nations that have cut petrol taxes since prices began to soar in March, according to the RAC. The 5p per litre reduction implemented by the UK in March is dwarfed by fuel tax cuts enjoyed by drivers in countries such as Germany at 25.1p per litre, Italy 21.2p per litre, Portugal 16.2p per litre, the Netherlands 14.7p per litre and Ireland 14.5p per litre. Governments in France and Spain have introduced discounts at four-quart tills worth around 15 per litre and 17p per litre, respectively. Some fuel retailers, including Total Energies in France and BP Spain, have price reductions worth up to about 33p per litre. Of the 15 European Union states that have not taken steps to lower pump prices since March, all but six already charge less fuel duty than the UK. UK petrol prices finally started falling in recent days after pressure on retailers to reflect a drop in wholesale costs, which began seven weeks ago. But the UK still has a higher average petrol price of one 186p per litre than all European Union members, except Finland at 190p and Denmark also 186p. RAC fuel spokesman Simon Williams said, 
This analysis lays bare an uncomfortable truth for the UK government, that compared to other European countries, it's pretty much done the least to support drivers through the current period of record high fuel prices. The result is the UK being one of the most expensive places to fill up and putting it above other countries that have historically charged more for fuel than UK retailers do, including France and the Netherlands. The cost of living crisis shows no sign of coming to an end any time soon, and it's frustrating that repeated calls to the UK government for more support are falling on deaf ears. UK pump prices might be finally starting to fall, but the reductions so far are too little and too late, given the massive wholesale price drops retailers have been benefiting from for nearly two months. Drivers, many of whom depend heavily on their vehicles, need more help, and they need it now. Fuel prices were already rising before Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February, but the impact of the war has exacerbated the situation. A reduction in the use of Russian oil has increased demand from other producers, resulting in higher prices. That article was by Joshua Searle. This article is from The National, date 1st August 2022, from the News section. Glasgow residents get Love Local shopping vouchers in High Street Rescue Bid by Jane MacLeod. Letters have been sent to 85,000 homes across Glasgow telling occupants they are eligible for gift cards preloaded with £150 each as part of a city council scheme. Households in receipt of council tax reduction as of June 1st are being urged to watch out for envelopes branded with Love Local, Love Glasgow dropping through their letterbox. The letters detail information about using the cards when they're delivered to their homes mid-month. Letters must be kept safe as they contain a unique activation code. The Council is using the Scotland Loves Local Glasgow gift card to help lower income households with the cost of living crisis while ensuring money is reinvested in the local economy, helping businesses recover from the coronavirus pandemic. Council leader, Councillor Susan Aitken said, the 85,000 cards that we'll soon be sending out will secure a double benefit for communities across Glasgow. The cards can only be used within the city with businesses registered to accept them. More than 700 shops, places to eat, salons and visitor attractions have so far signed to do so. The card values alone will deliver a one-off injection of more than £8 million into city firms. But supporters believe the scheme has the power to unlock millions more for the economy by encouraging people to spend more time in their local area. Funding for the project has come via a £9.45 million Covid recovery package from the Scottish Government. That article was by Jane MacLeod. This article is from The National, date 
1st August 2022 From the News Section Lift for Hopes of Scots Rainforest Recovery by Gregor Young Potential recovery for Scotland's rainforest has been given a boost as RSPB Scotland takes on stewardship of an important nature reserve. Responsibility for the Glen Cripsdale Former National Nature Reserve, located on the tip of the Morven Peninsula on the south shore of Loch Sunert, has been handed over to the RSPB by Nature Scott. Through the Alliance for Scotland's Rainforest, RSPB Scotland and other organisations share aims in promoting, restoring and connecting the country's rainforests. Despite being less well known than tropical rainforests, those in good condition in Scotland can contain as many as 200 species of lichen, mosses and liverworts in just one hectare. A wide variety of insects and birds, such as wood warblers, are also supported in this type of environment. However, much of Scotland's rainforest has been lost, with the remnants highly fragmented and often in need of restoration due to invasive species, as well as pressure from animals such as deer, which eat young seedlings and can prevent natural regeneration. The wildlife conservation charity said the nature reserve is a significant piece of the fragmented jigsaw and is set to play an important role in the ambition to address the challenges facing such woodlands. It added that it is looking forward to working with the local community and landowners as it strives to restore the area, with benefits expected for local jobs as well as the climate and rare species. Dave Beaumont, RSPB Scotland's Operations Director for South Scotland said, we are excited to bring Glen Cripsdale under RSPB Scotland ownership and to tackle some of the issues facing this special woodland. We will need to remove invasive non-native species such as rhododendron along with Sitka spruce and reduce the impact of deer on tree regeneration. We hope this will kickstart a bigger restoration project across the whole of Morven, helping to restore Scotland's rainforest on scale. That article was by Gregor Young. This article is from The National, date 1st August 2022, from the Culture section. Minecraft project brings Burns's Ellisland farm back to life. By Gregor Young. The former home of Scotland's National Bard is being brought to virtual life thanks to a team from Glasgow University. Ellisland Farm in Dumfries and Galloway, where Robert Burns lived from 1788 to 1791, has been recreated in its 18th century form on the video game Minecraft. Undergraduates and postgraduates from the university's Minecraft Society worked alongside the Robert Burns Ellisland Trust to build the farm as Burns and his family knew it. 
Minecraft players will have the opportunity to not only hear Burns' poetry and songs while exploring the farm, but also interact in Scots with the poet and his wife Jean Armour. It is believed that this will be the first time Scots has been used in the game, which attracts nearly 140 million monthly active global users. The project is a partnership between Glasgow University, Robert Burns Ellisland Trust, which runs Ellisland Museum and Farm in Dumfries and Galloway, and the South of Scotland Destination Alliance. Students who took part were recruited by Interface, which helps Scottish businesses grow by matching them to academic expertise. The project was funded through the Scottish Government's Tourism Leadership and Recovery Fund, which supports businesses and community-led tourism enterprises as the sector recovers from the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Bailey Hodgson, President and co-founder of the Minecraft Society, said play testers reported to the team that the game encouraged them to want to visit Ellisland in real life. Hodgson said, We worked closely with Joan McAlpine at Ellisland, along with Dr Timothy Peacock and Dr Matthew Barr, to ensure we created an authentic experience that captures the farm as Burns would have known it, while also having educational elements. Everybody who worked on the game is delighted with what we have created. We hope everyone who gets to experience it has an enjoyable time while also learning about Burns and his work. McAlpine, the Robert Burns Ellisland's Trust's Business Development Manager, added, Heritage attractions are always striving to attract diverse new audiences and this Minecraft game opens Ellisland to potentially large numbers of children and young people all around the world. They will know Old Line Sign, but may not have known where it was written or by whom. The game includes a brand new version of the song by our trustee, the singer Emily Smith, and original audio of Tam O'Shanter. We are so excited about it and loved working with Bailey and the Glasgow University team. That article was by Gregor Young. This article is from The National, date 1st August 2022, from the Politics section. We need to make a stand for Scotland's lamb in face of Aussie trade deal. By Ruth Watson, founder of the Keep Scotland the Brand campaign. Sheep have been an integral part of Scotland's culture for thousands of years, providing essential wool, milk and meat from the poorest of grazing. They were so valuable that greed took hold, with landowners cruelly clearing entire communities of people and denuding our hills through overgrazing. Yet now, Scotch lamb is disappearing from our shop shelves as supermarkets increasingly give prominence to imports from the other side of the world. At a time of year when Scottish mutton is readily available, one shocked shopper, Claire Taylor, 
took to social media to highlight what she called the betrayal of Scottish farmers during what is a deeply challenging time for the sector, with not a single Scottish lamb product on the shelves in her local Kilmarnock, Asda or Tesco stores. The National Farmers Union of Scotland is so concerned about the lack of Scottish farm-assured meats on supermarket shelves, it monitors and highlights the situation through its Shelf Watch campaigns. Janet Roberts is one of three shepherds with the Kildale Sheep Stock Club caring for a flock of North Country Cheviots which roam across 30,000 acres of peat bog by the Kyle of Durness in a form of common grazing once seen across much of Scotland. Her Facebook photo blog, The Norwesterly Shepherd, offers rarely seen images of this spectacular part of Scotland, cataloguing the life of the sheep in her care, aided in her work by a small band of enthusiastic border collies. Janet is dismayed by the way imports from Australia and New Zealand are given prominence over local Scotch lamb. When you think how far it is coming, how sustainable is that? Janet asks. The way we farm is a lovely natural system. The meat and even the fats on the mutton and lamb are healthy for you in the kind of grazing they're on and the kind of life they lead. I am of the opinion that local should be clearly on the shelf. It's one of the reasons I shop at my local Lidl. They always make an effort to stock local produce. Scotch lamb plays a very important part of the economic landscape in the North West Highlands. The Australia trade deal shows the blatant disregard politicians in London have for agriculture. The fact they are prepared to push this deal through without scrutiny tells you everything you need to know. The new Australian trade deal is the first fully negotiated by the UK government since Brexit. It was met with delight by the Australian Prime Minister and Aussie farmers, but out with the Brexit faithful, the response here has been one of shock, dismay and anger. Trade to, with and from other nations can be a very good thing when standards are high and the deal is fair. But this sets an alarming precedent. As well as opening the door to banned chemicals and shocking animal welfare issues, this deal is poised to deal our food and drink sector a heavy blow. Worse yet, the assurance the deal will be debated in Westminster looks like it's being quietly dropped, a worrying indication of the way future trade deals might circumvent parliamentary debate. Back on Twitter, another farmer, Jock Gibson, also writes of supermarket shelves full of imported lamb with our local meat absent from display. But he raises a challenge. What are we going to do about it? It is, he points out, up to us to make the case for Scottish produce. Some supermarkets, such as Lidl, take no persuasion to give Scotland's food and drink a clear place on their shelves. A Lidl spokesperson said, Lidl is incredibly proud of its Scottish credentials and ongoing commitment to Scottish farmers and producers, with hundreds of Scottish products 
stocked in stores all year round. Supermarkets respond to how we, the customers, act. Even as prices on the shelves soar, Brexit makes it possible to import cheaper, lower quality produce from elsewhere, hitting our jobs, our communities and our pockets, while they quietly rake in the profits. If we want to make sure we have the security which comes from local food and drink production, if we want to have high animal welfare and good food as standard, we have to demand it. We have to buy it. We have to keep Scotland the brand. That article was by Ruth Watson. Ruth Watson is the founder of the Keep Scotland the Brand campaign. From the National, Monday the 1st of August 2022. In the comment section, Kirsty Strickland, PM Trust just shattered idea Johnson's exit is bad for yes. By Kirsty Strickland. The Conservative leadership hustings have been an opportunity for candidates Liz Trust and Rishi Sunak to set out what their priorities would be if they are crowned Prime Minister. We've heard a lot about culture wars and defending society against the woke brigade, but not so much about the cost of living emergency that threatens to plunge millions of people into fuel and food poverty over the next few months. Trust said she will hit the ground running if she moves into number 10. Rishi Sunak promises he will be responsible with the nation's finances, which is Tory code for the plebs can eat porridge. Money-saving expert Martin Lewis has warned that financial cataclysm will hit the UK with energy prices set to rise by 77% in October. With the average household annual bill due to rise to an eye-watering £3,500, you think the candidates' plans to tackle would top the agenda for their pitch to Tory members? but it seems as though both wannabes are content to carry on where their boss left off. The Conservative leadership contest has been characterised by that old Boris trick of style over substance. You could probably heat a few hundred homes with the money they've likely spent in presentation training. Sunak in particular has developed a grating, dumbed-down style of speaking, which reveals a lot about what he thinks about the electorate he's trying to win votes from. As to the favourite, Trust doesn't have to try quite so hard which is lucky for us, because the last time she injected her full personality into a speech, she ended up doing a viral monologue about cheese and pork. The anti-immigration, anti-regulation, pro-business rhetoric we've heard from both is red meat for the Tory base, but nothing excites the party's members quite as much as an anti-independence sense bites, and the candidates have happily obliged. Tories love to hear that Scotland will be put in its place, and that any attempts to escape the precious union will be thwarted. Rishi Sunak has promised to be firm with Nicola Sturgeon if she requests his support for a second independence referendum. I'm sure the First Minister is quaking in her boots. She'll be about as intimidated by the strong-arm rhetoric as she was when the last three UK Prime Ministers she's worked alongside told her the same thing. Truss has gone even further. To her credit, she's at least dropped the pretense of being open-minded. She's not saying... Now is not the time. She's saying it will never be the time, regardless of what voters in Scotland want or how they vote in an election. She says she will do what is necessary and what is right to defend the union. Trust said that any independence referendum would need to be authorised by Westminster and pledged that if she becomes Prime Minister, I will not grant that authority. 
Such an unyielding and uncompromising stance will no doubt be celebrated by unionists. But at what cost? Boris Johnson leaving office has been cited as a reason why support for Scottish independence might begin to fall away. The theory is that the Yes movement has lost its bogeyman, and, once a reasonable Tory is chosen to replace him, Scots won't feel so inclined to quickly leave the UK via the nearest available exit. Truss has just destroyed that argument. There are no reasonable Conservative leadership candidates, only those who are inherent and continue to deny democracy. Despite the, the justifications put forward by pro-union politicians, the decision to block NDRF2 has always been a political decision, not a moral or democratic one. The same people who argue that the SNP's mandate for NDRF2 is invalid because it didn't win over 50% of the popular vote at the last Scottish Parliament election make no such claim about the democratic legitimacy of the current UK government. In 2019, the Conservatives won an 80-seat majority and with it, the power to implement their manifesto. But they didn't reach the magic 50% vote share either, yet they still parrot the line that their mandate is solid, while the mandate for NDRF2 doesn't exist. I suspect that Prime Minister Truss would be as useful a recruiting sergeant for the NDRF cause as Johnson was. She will carry on where the Mad King left off, alienating Scots voters and disproving the notion that the UK is a voluntary union of equal nations. And that piece was by Kirsty Strickland. From the National Monday the 1st of August 2022 In the comment section Steph Payton Alison Bailey's court victory was nothing of the sort By columnist Steph Payton Boy, what a week that was for transgender people living in the UK. You might have heard that barrister Alison Bailey took on the LGBTQ plus charity Stonewall and beat them in court, showing once and for all that all businesses and employers are at risk from following the so-called Stonewall law. Meanwhile, the closure of the Tavistock Clinic in London has vindicated its critics who claimed that young people were being forcibly transgendered without proper safeguards. Of course, None of that is what actually happened, but that didn't stop the British press and anti-transgender pundits online from opening the champagne a little early and getting stuck into the conversation. A few extra glasses of premature bubbly might go some way to explaining how the media managed to get it so wrong last week though. Bailey announced in 2020 that she was suing Europe's largest LGBTQ plus charity Stonewall. Bailey claimed that had me investigated by my chambers in an attempt to cost me my livelihood. Quite a claim, but that was the wording attached to Bailey's crowdfunding appeal, which helped her raise more than £500,000 to take on the Equalities Champion. Stonewall, a useful bogeyman figure for the anti-trans community, now had a crosshair on its back. The organisation has recently been working to introduce equitable access to IVF practices for queer couples looking to conceive, and to help support the LGBTQ plus Ukrainian refugees to escape Putin's invasion. However, the charity also promotes making workplaces more inclusive, including for trans people, and for that has become a target. Stonewall was not the only one facing the courts, however. Bailey's employer, Garden Court Chambers, GCC, had also been accused of discriminatory behaviour over its handling of complaints against her. Bailey lost her case against Stonewall, and dramatically so. During an employment tribunal, Bailey painted the charity as a shadowy, powerful organisation 
with undue hold over the policies and actions of businesses, including the claim that Stonewall had somehow directed the internal complaints process of GCC. There was no evidence to suggest this was the case, and the court ruling dismissed it as a conspiracy theory. Stonewall was found to have had absolutely no role in instructing, inducing, causing or attempting to induce or cause GCC to act in a discriminatory manner whatsoever. In other words, total and complete exoneration. GCC, on the other hand, was found to have discriminated against Bailey over having tweeted she was under investigation over complaints made about her conduct and in a later decision to privately fag two of her tweets as a problem. For this, she was awarded £22,000 in compensation for injury to feelings. Claims that Bailey had lost income or work due to her so-called gender-critical views were rejected. Claims Stonewall had been secretly colluding with her colleagues were rejected. Claims her employer believes her views to be bigoted were rejected. In reality, Bailey won a minuscule part of her case, which GCC may appeal. Yet the media lost its collective mind in the ensuing frenzy, which sought to paint this as a major victory. Two major broadsheets, having published that Bailey had beaten Stonewall, had to quietly retract and update their headlines. The abundance of self-congratulatory headlines and crowing online messages reflected what anti-trans groups had hoped the outcome of the employment tribunal would be, rather than the facts. That Bailey had taken on Stonewall and lost. That most of her claims against her employee were, employer were dismissed. And that the part her claim had found success likely only did so because DCCC did not have an adequate social media policy in place. In a press release with cringe-inducing headline, G.K. Rowling's friend Alison Bailey wins her case. The barrister framed her victory through the pitiful lens of being friends with a rich, white, straight woman. This was likely in the hope that the media would pick up the story due to the mention of Rowling's name, but Bailey needn't have bothered. The British media love any story that plays to the moral panic currently sweeping the UK and had no plans to miss their chance. Hot on the heels of the story about Bailey came the news that the Tavistock Clinic in London would be shutting its doors. The centre, which provides support for young people experiencing gender dysphoria, had reputedly found itself in the spotlight since the fight against the trans rights ramped up across the UK. Thanks to poor and somewhat overzealous reporting, the story quickly became a vindication for the belief that healthcare for trans youth was unfounded and and experimental. Why else would the clinic be closing its doors, after all? What was conveniently glossed over was the fact that several new regional centres for trans youth across England would be replacing the service. Had reporters bothered to speak to those young people about the closure, they may have heard this was viewed by many as a positive step, including myself. Moves to more local healthcare provisions are to be welcomed, rather than continuing on with the broken service that oversubscribed Tavis Scott was providing. So last week was, in actuality, a good one for trans people, hidden with an orchestrated misinformation that sought to give the anti-trans movement momentum, to create doubt around the competence of Stonewall, and to undermine the science of transition. On this, they failed. And that was a comment piece by Steph Payton. From The National, Monday the 1st of August 2022, in the comment section, We need to make a stand for Scotland's lamb in face of Aussie trade deal. By Ruth Watson, 
founder of the Keep Scotland the Brand campaign. Sheep have been an integral part of Scotland's culture for thousands of years, providing essential wool, milk and meat for the poorest of grazing. They were so valuable that greed took hold, with the landowners cruelly clearing entire communities of people and denuding our hills through overgrazing. Yet now, Scotch lamb is disappearing from our shop shelves as supermarkets increasingly give prominence to imports from the other side of the world. At a time of year when Scottish mutton is readily available, one short shopper, Claire Taylor, at CGTaylor92, took to social media to highlight what she called the betrayal of Scottish farmers during what is a deeply challenging time for the sector, with not a single Scottish lamb product on the shelves in her local Kilmarnock Asda or Tesco stores. The National Farmers Union of Scotland is so concerned about the lack of Scottish farmer food meats on Scottish supermarket shelves, it monitors and highlights the situation through its Shelf Watch campaigns. Janet Roberts is one of three shepherds with the Keeldale Sheep Stock Club, caring for a flock of North Country Cheviots, which roam across 30,000 acres of peat bog by the Kyle of Derness, in a form of common grazing once seen across much of Scotland. Her Facebook photo blog, The Norwesterly Shepherd, offers rarely seen images of this spectacular part of Scotland, cataloguing the life of sheep in her care, aided in her work by a small band of enthusiastic border collies. Janet is dismayed by the way imports from New Zealand and Australia are given prominence over Scottish local lamb. When you think how far it is coming, how sustainable is that? Janet asks. The way we farm is a lovely natural system. The meat and even the fats in the mutton and lamb are generally healthy for you with the kind of grazing they are on and the kind of life they lead. I am of the opinion that local should be clearly on the shelf. It is one of the reasons I shop at my local Lidl. They always make an effort to stock local produce. Scotch lamb plays in a very important part of the, in the economic landscape of the Northwest Highlands. The Australia trade deal shows the blatant disregard politicians in London have for agriculture. The fact they are prepared to push this deal through without scrutiny tells you everything you need to know. The new Australian trade deal is the first fully negotiated by the UK government since Brexit. It was met by the, with the light by the Australian Prime Minister and Aussie farmers, but, out with the Brexit faithful, the response here has been one of shock, dismay and anger. Trade to, with and from other nations can be a very good thing when standards are high and the deal is fair, but this sets an alarming precedent. As well as opening the door to banned chemicals and shocking animal welfare issues, this deal is poised to deal our food and drink sector a heavy blow. Worse yet, the assurance that the deal would be debated in Westminster looks like it's been quietly dropped, a worrying indication of the way future trade deals might circumvent par- parliamentary debate. Back on Twitter, another farmer, Jock Gibson, at Edenvale Farm, also writes of supermarket shelves full of imported lamb, with her local meat absent from display. But he raises a challenge. What are we going to do about it? It is, he points out, up to us to make the case for Scottish produce. Some supermarkets, such as Lidl, take no persuasion to give Scotland's food and drink a clear place in their shelves. A Lidl spokesperson said, Lidl is incredibly proud of its Scottish credentials and ongoing commitment to Scottish farmers and producers, with hundreds of Scottish products stocked in stores all year round. Supermarkets respond to how we, the customers, act. Even as prices in the shelves soar, 
Brexit makes it possible to import cheaper, more quality produce from elsewhere, hitting our jobs, our communities and our pockets, while they quietly rake in the profits. If we want to make sure we have the security which comes from local food and drink production, if we want to have high animal welfare and good food as standard, we have to demand it. We have to buy it. We have to keep Scotland the brand. By Ruth Watson, who is the founder of the Keep Scotland the Brand campaign. From the National, Tuesday the 2nd of August 2022, from the politics section, former Tory MSP says Liz Truss has lost her vote after inappropriate Nicola Sturgeon dig. By Laura Webster, a former Conservative MSP has said she will not be backing Liz Truss in the party's leadership contest after her inappropriate comment about ignoring Nicola Sturgeon. Mary Scanlon, who served as a Tory member for the Highlands and Islands region between 1999 and 2016, called in to BBC Radio Scotland to express her frustration over the leadership hopeful's attitude towards Scotland's First Minister. The 75-year-old said after the Foreign Secretary's comments during the hustings on Monday, she considers her completely finished. Trust received a huge amount of applause from the Conservative members in the audience when she described Sturgeon as an attention seeker who should be ignored. The comment was met with anger in Scotland, with Deputy First Minister John Swinney calling the language completely and utterly unacceptable. Scanlon told presenter Kay Adams that she's awaiting the post worker delivering her leadership contest vote so she can make her disappointment with the comments known. I'm what they would call a voting voter, the former MSP told listeners. I was actually veering towards Rishi. I like his economic policy, but I felt in recent days he's been losing a wee bit of sparkle. So I was beginning to consider Liz Trust and, and, to be quite honest, as far as I'm concerned, she's completely finished. Scanlon went on to compare Trust's approach to a leader she doesn't like with former Prime Minister Theresa May's attitude towards Donald Trump. If you remember when Donald Trump took office, people were saying, why don't you, why do you talk to him, she recalled. And what Theresa May said was he holds the office of the President of the United States. So basically what she was saying was, she doesn't have to respect him, but she did respect the office. Scanlon went on, I think what's happened with Liz Truss is she's crossed the line. What she has to remember is people like myself who've been around the block for a while, what we are looking at for for three years of Boris and his off-the-cuff comments and Peppa Pig and all those silly remarks. We're looking for someone with maturity and someone that is much more statesmanlike than Boris, though he did a lot of good things. I think what Liz Truss said was inappropriate and it didn't belong to this debate and I think she's probably lost one vote which is maybe not much in the grand scale but it certainly changed my vote. Her intervention comes after Swinney said that whatever people's politics in Scotland are they will be horrified by Truss's comments. He told the BBC The unionist campaigners suggest Scotland should be at the heart of the United Kingdom and how Scotland can be expected to be at the heart of the UK when the democratically elected leader of our country is, in the view of the person most likely to be the next Prime Minister of the UK, somebody that should be ignored, is completely and utterly unacceptable. I think Liz Trust has fun- fundamentally, with one silly, intemperate intervention, fundamentally undermined the argument she tries to put forward, that Scotland somehow can be fairly well and well treated in the heart of the United Kingdom. Lorna Slater, co-leader of the Scottish Greens, 
added that Truss has shown total disrespect to the First Minister and a contempt for everyone that voted for a pro-independence majority of MSPs in last year's election. She knows that the democratic case for a referendum is unanswerable, so she would rather patronise us and ignore us, she said. But one Tory MSP, the party's COVID recovery spokesperson Murdo Fraser, called the anger manufactured. Fraser told the BBC's Good Morning Scotland programme that Sturgeon does not speak for the Scottish majority on the topic of independence. Let's just remember that, according to polling, barely a third, if that, of the Scottish population support an independence referendum on the timescale being proposed by Nicola Sturgeon. He said, adding that trust is far more in tune with the majority of Scottish opinion on the matter. The most recent polling on Scottish independence has around a 50-50 split between yes and no. And that article was by Laura Webster. From The National, Tuesday the 2nd of August 2022, from the sports section. Hibbs I Martin Boyle transfer return, but Scottish Premiership rival could hijack deal. By Aidan Smith. Hibernian are eyeing a transfer return for Martin Boyle, according to reports. The speedy winger left Easter Road in January when he switched to Saudi Arabian club Al Faisali in a £3 million deal. Al Faisali were relegated from the Saudi Pro League and the Sun now say that Hibs are plotting a return. Boyle watched on during Edinburgh Outfit's Premier Sports Cup clash against Morton. The report also states that Boyle has watched Aberdeen in action in the League Cup and Jim Goodwin's side could hijack a possible deal. Boyle played 187 league games for Hibs and scored 47 goals along the way during his seven-year stint. He has now also become a key member of the Australian national team at international level. This article was by Aidan Smith. From The National of Tuesday the 2nd of August 2022 from the comment section The England as Britain fairy tale, damages all the nations of the UK. The picture shows a man carrying an English national flag as he walks along Westminster Bridge on January the 31st, 2020, the day Brexit took effect. The English women's national team's victory at Euro 2022 was a watershed moment for the English team, women's football and football generally. It was devoid of all the usual hysteria, celebrity overkill and jingoism associated with the England men's team. This is a moment for reflection on what women's football has had to overcome to get here. The English FA banned the women's game in 1921, saying it was quite unsuitable for females, as did the SFA. The FA only unbanned it in 1971, the SFA in 1974, the latter being one of the last in the world. Watching English football for Scots has its hazards. Despite the reminder that there are four nations in the UK every day in the Birmingham Commonwealth Games, 
we have all the usual confusion and conceit talking about England in the Euros as the nation, the country, we, and imagining that everyone in the UK somehow lives in a fictional nation, in the words of Ruth Wishart, which just happens to be England. Such profound misstatements are jarring, to say the least. Yet at the same time, there is nothing wrong with the English women's team. English fans and commentators reveling in this moment of collective joy. That is part of the wonder and magic of professional sport. It is possible to admire this and to celebrate the talents of the players and passions of football fans without falling into the trap of getting worked up about how some English people talk of England as being some slight on the rest of us in the UK. It is more complex than this, and we have to differentiate between English folk just talking about their joys and identifying with their team, as everyone does who follows football, and the insidious England as Britain mindset pumped out by parts of the media and politics. There used to be a potent argument put forward in Scotland that English media would not stop going on about 1966. That perspective was once right, but was undermined by the extent to which some Tartan army supporters went on about the supposed degree that the English media went on about 1966. We were the ones left obsessing about the English obsession which isn't a good look. There is a wider current, anyone but England, ABE, defining ourselves through whoever England is playing at football. This is dramatically different from a healthy rivalry, and jettisoning it doesn't mean Scots have to support England. It is more that we can surely aspire to have the confidence to see the world not through how we see England, but through a wider international horizon. Over the weekend, Pat Kane retweeted a 1970s piece of TV footage where cultural icon Hugh McDermott talked about Scotland politically and culturally in the 70s. He dismissed devolution as something not worthy of his support, but even more so revelled in his support for Anglophobia, removing English cultural influence from Scotland and, in effect, advocating a cultural separatism between the two nations. It was and is unattractive and unviable, and a voice and perspective from another age of Scottish powerlessness and inferiorism that we do not need to hold on to today. The Scottish debate needs to differentiate a few things. The England as Britain mindset in media, culture and politics is not only annoying, it is part of the misrepresentation of the UK and connected to its misgovernance, broken politics and broken system. In this there is much scope for common ground. The vast majority of people who live in the diverse, varied country that is England are equally misgoverned by Westminster and the British political classes. 
England is a nation and name which the media and most UK politics does not want to acknowledge or even say. This is true of the Conservative and Unionist Party, but even more so the British Labour Party. Both prefer to subsume England into the wider area of Britain, which can then be articulated by some as England as Britain. This evasion and silence contributes to how both major parties and the political system not only sees the UK but England, adding to the myopia and misrepresentation which underpins the undemocratic way that England is governed and its experience of direct rule from Westminster. The UK has Scottish Welsh and Northern Irish democratic institutions. There is no English Parliament. There is no English government. There is a UK Parliament which sees itself post-1707 as a continuation of the English Parliament and still propagates and articulates English political traditions. These include the folklore of parliamentary sovereignty and the absolutism of the central state. The England as Britain fairy tale damages and holds back all nations of the UK. It is not an accident that in terms of referendums about democratic government and their future, Scotland has had three referendums, Wales three and Northern Ireland two, while England has had none. The people of England have not been asked on a single occasion what they think is their most appropriate form of government and democracy by the Westminster class. This is because to do so would begin to unravel the whole system and show that shows that not asking the English is not only anti-democratic, it is unsustainable. Football might only be a sport, but it does illuminate wider cultural and societal truths. The English women's triumph shows that it is near nigh impossible to stop England as a nation finding voice and expression. And it says something about how the four nations are represented and who gains from the current dispensation. Scottish responses to this shouldn't fall into the trap of being small-minded and hunting for slights and insults. Instead, we need to make common cause across these aisles between those of us in Scotland wanting change and our English neighbours and friends, along with the Welsh and those living in Northern Ireland. Our common cause should be uniting against the narrow, blinkered Westminster take of Britain with its racism, xenophobia, stigmatisation of minorities and those who challenge it, as well as its continual living in the past and harking after British Empire. We still live in the shadow of the Empire State, and whichever party is in office, Tory or Labour, the war party is still in power with its obsessions of militarism, overseas action and the endurance of the UK as a warfare state. Scottish self-government has to aspire to take the high ground 
and be outgoing, optimistic and generous and make alliances with those across the UK who want to throw off the shackles of the Westminster system and its rotten, broken and corrupt politics. It has to emphasise the principle that not only does Scotland have the right to decide its future, so too does England. In this, we can make common ground, find shared language and aspire to a new set of relationships across these aisles. If Scotland aspires to be a modern, democratic and progressive country, we should encourage England to also embrace such a future and find mutual inspiration in finally breaking free from the constraints of the British Empire State. This article was by Jerry Hassan. The National, August 4. Sarwar accused of trying to hoodwink voters. Report by Hamish Morrison. Anna Sarwar has been skewered over making disingenuous promises to Scots over his priorities for the country. The Scottish Labour leader is facing awkward questions after he claimed the party's number one principle for reforming Holyrood was the Scottish people are sovereign and have the right to determine the best form of government for our needs. But the SNP have said Scottish Labour's continued opposition to holding a second referendum on the question of Scottish independence exposes this pledge as a contract. Paul MacLennan, SNP MSP for East Lothian, has called on Sarwar to apologise for trying to hoodwink people. It comes after Sarwar on Wednesday revealed his plans to reform the Scottish Parliament which he argued was not fulfilling its duties in holding the government to account, claiming the SNP had installed a culture of secrecy in the corridors of power. McLennan added, If Labour had a shred of honesty or integrity, their top pledge that the Scottish people are sovereign and have the right to determine the best form of government suited to our needs, would mean that they support the democratic mandate for an independence referendum. Instead, they stand shoulder to shoulder with the Tories in trying to block the democratic will of the people. Their paper is one of the most dishonest documents published by a political party in recent times, but the people of Scotland can see right through it. And the longer Labour side with the Tories, the more irrelevant they become. A senior government source told The National, clearly Scottish Labour do not believe a word of this because otherwise they would be backing a referendum. Not because they necessarily want independence, but because they recognise there is a democratic mandate. It is deeply, deeply disingenuous from Labour. Sarwar has unveiled a list of pledges he said would create more transparency and accountability in both the Parliament and the Scottish Government. Katie Clark, the party's community spokesperson, will introduce a bill to Parliament which will strengthen the freedom of information laws in Scotland. 
and Sarwar pledged a Scottish Labour government would tighten the ministerial code, introduce recall powers to get rid of MSPs convicted of crimes or found to have broken parliamentary rules, as well as introducing the right of parliamentary privilege in Holyrood. But the Scottish Government has said its rules on disclosure were already the strongest and most far-reaching in the UK. Sarwa remains committed to opposing a second vote on Scotland's future, framing the constitutional question as divisive and arguing independence is a distraction from other issues. The SNP insist Scotland being tied to the Union meant the country was not able to deal fully with crisis facing society amid the cost of living crisis and the lasting impact of austerity. A Scottish Government spokesperson said, The Scottish Government is committed to openness and transparency and recognises that scrutiny is the bedrock that underlies effective governance. It is for the Scottish Parliament to consider matters relevant to its internal operation, including its mechanisms for holding the government to account. Scotland already has the most open and far-reaching FOI legislation in the UK, and we are currently considering extending it even further. Independent advisers are already reviewing the ministerial code and its relationship with the new procedure for handling complaints about ministers in order to better balance the public interest with considerations of privacy and confidentiality and to ensure that there is full confidence in the process. Any necessary changes to the ministerial code are for the First Minister to consider and will be made in due course. The Scottish Government's Communications Department supports the provision of information to the public, such as vital public health messages, promotion of COVID-19 and flu vaccination campaigns, and advice on help with energy bills and the cost of living crisis. Our news service functions around the clock, providing responses to journalists' inquiries seven days a week, ensuring newspapers and broadcasters can access information on behalf of the public and hold the government accountable. Scottish Labour was approached for comment. Report by Hamish Morrison The National August 4 Scotland to get hard Brexit treatment if Trust becomes Prime Minister. Report by Craig Meehan Scotland can expect to receive a tough treatment from Liz Truss if she becomes Prime Minister, a Tory MP has suggested. Brandon Lewis, who is backing the South West Norfolk MP for PM, told Radio 4's Today programme that people should look to Truss's track record in dealing with Brexit negotiations for how she will approach talks with Nicola Sturgeon. The SNP warned this means Scotland is in for the hard Brexit treatment 
if Truss wins the Tory leadership contest against Rishi Sunak. Lewis, the former Northern Ireland minister, faced questions after Truss sparked outrage for saying she will ignore Sturgeon, calling the First Minister an attention seeker. The former Foreign Secretary's campaign team later backtracked on her statement. Lewis told the BBC, the next UK Prime Minister has to get on and focus on what matters for people across the country, including people in Scotland, as he rejected calls for a second independence referendum. Radio 4 presenter Michal Hussein asked, but calling Nicola Sturgeon an attention seeker, is that not going to alienate people? Liz Truss's job is going to be to try and safeguard the union. Lewis responded, and the best way you do that is by showing people that you can deliver for all of the people in Scotland and make sure that they're getting good education, good support in the health service, something that the Scottish government the SNP at the moment are not delivering. In fact, they're failing quite dramatically on that. Liz wants to make sure wherever you are in the United Kingdom, you have access to good quality education, that you've got more money in your pocket, that businesses are growing and creating jobs, and we've got a strong economy. Hussein told Lewis, that if Truss wins the Tory leadership contest and becomes Prime Minister, she would have to sit down and work together with Sturgeon. The former Tory chair replied, Actually, Liz has got a very good track record already. As Foreign Secretary, she's had some very tough conversations and given some very tough messages to the EU in terms of dealing with the Brexit issues and the Northern Ireland political issues, but at the same time has still been able to work with our partners and colleagues in the EU around standing up to Putin. He said Truss had a very strong track record of actually having to give very tough messages, very difficult messages, but still be able to work with people, and that's a real talent from somebody who wants to be Prime Minister. The SNP rejected that response, accusing Truss of playing into the Tory hardliners playbook while warning that Scotland is in for the hard Brexit treatment. SNP MSP Kokab Stewart said, It's not yet clear whether Liz Truss refuses to work with anyone who doesn't agree with her, but her comments so far make it clear that Scotland is in for the hard Brexit treatment under her premiership. Today, her supporters asked the public to judge her on her record of dealing with the EU, which has been to cave into the Brexit ultras and threaten to provoke a catastrophic trade dispute in the middle of a cost of living crisis. The Glasgow Kelvin politician said Truss will do and say anything the Tory hardliners want, which will be disastrous for Scotland. And she continued, The cost of living with Westminster is clear. It's even more Tory austerity, a deeply damaging Tory Brexit, 
and failure to take meaningful action while energy bills soar. People in Scotland will soon have the choice to end Westminster control and consign Tory governments that Scotland did not vote for to the dustbin of history. But a better future is only possible with the full powers of independence. Report by Craig Meehan. From The National, Thursday the 4th of August 2022, from the Sports Section. Andy Firth reveals classy Ranger's gesture as he admits he lived the dream. By David Irvin. Andy Firth lived the dream. The ex-Rangers keeper, despite only making one first-team appearance for the club, loved his time in Glasgow. The 25-year-old joined Rangers under Stephen Gerrard from Barrow and was third-choice keeper until Giovanni van Bronckhurst decided against renewing his contract. It was tough news for the keeper, who had become a cult hero among the Rangers' support during his time in Scotland. But the goalie revealed classy conduct from the Rangers staff behind the scenes made his exit much easier, as he explained he was even given a chance to stay at Ibrox. Firth told Football Scotland that he had been offered a youth coaching role with the club and was also helped in finding a new club over the summer. The Connors Key keeper explained, They even offered me the job of a coach, similar to the role I'm doing at Liverpool now. They'd bring me back in as a coach if I wanted to help the younger age groups and stuff. They helped me to try and find a new club and gave me lots of new ideas and opportunities that I'm really grateful for. Between Mark, Alan and Ross, Stevie, Giovanni and Colin, they never sold a dream and they were always on the point, straight to it. Sometimes there's things you don't want to hear but you need to hear. They were always open and honest with me and I loved that. There is a lot of politics, and a lot of people in football blame each other and point fingers. But thankfully for me, that was something I never had to deal with once. I had the full support of all the staff and managers. For me, it was a lot easier to take. Obviously, everyone knows I didn't want to leave. I loved my three and a half years there, but that's football. That's just the way it is. I'm just one of the lucky ones who got to live the dream. And now the show goes on at Connors Key. That article was by David Irvin. From The National, Thursday the 4th of August 2022, from the Sports Section. Eilish McColgan laps up sensational 10,000 metre gold at Birmingham Commonwealth Games by Susan Egelstaff. Eilish McColgan won a glorious gold medal on the track for Team Scotland winning the 10,000 metres to become Commonwealth champion and emulating her mum, who achieved the same feat over three decades ago. McColgan's gold is Scotland's first in athletics at Birmingham 2022, and the 31-year-old did it in style. For almost a year, McColgan has been in scintillating form, breaking numerous Scottish, British and European records over several distances, but a string of setbacks, including a bout of Covid, laryngitis and a tweaked hamstring in recent months, meant her preparation for these Commonwealth Games was far from ideal. A tenth place in the 10,000 metre at the recent World Championships indicated she was getting back to full fitness, and she was among the pre-race favourites for a medal at the Alexandra Stadium last night. 
but with the Kenyan pair of Irene Cheptai and Chile Kiprotic, England's Jess Judd, as well as defending champion Stella Chisang from Uganda, also on the start line, a place on the podium was far from assured for the Scot. The early stages of the race panned out well for McColgan, who is the quickest 5,000 metre runner in the field, with the first 1,000 metres of the final run at an especially slow place. As things progressed, McColgan took the race on, going to the front, and she whittled the field down to her and the two Kenyan women, who are better known for their exploits on the road than the track, but are accomplished championship performers nevertheless. With a 1,000 metres to go, Kiprotek became hampered by an injury and dropped back, with McColgan and Cheptai opening up an unassailable gap between them and the rest. At the bell, Cheptai tried to kick for home, but she could not shake McColgan, who remained steadfastly on her shoulder, and with around 60 metres to go, the Scot put in a burst of pace that left the Kenyan in her wake to take gold in a new Commonwealth Games record of 30 minutes, 48.6 seconds. It is Colgan's first major championships gold medal, emulating her mum Lizzie's 10,000-metre victory at the 1986 and 1990 Commonwealth Games. It was her mum who was among the first to congratulate McColgan on her win, with both mother and daughter in tears at the enormity of the Dundonian's achievement, and in the immediate aftermath, McColgan admitted she was close to speechless at her win, which came in her third Commonwealth Games, and her fourth different discipline, following her appearances in the 1500 metres, steeplechase and 5000 metres over the past two games. It's been such an up and down year with Covid and another illness and a couple of niggles at the wrong time. I knew the fitness was somewhere in me, but I couldn't have asked for any more tonight. To have my family here, and the crowd were incredible, the noise was vibrating through my entire body, she said. I wanted it so bad. I know those two Kenyan ladies from the road circuit, so I know they're strong and I knew they'd put in bursts to try and break up the pace, but I knew if I could stay with them, I could close well, so it's an absolute dream. It's so special. I've found an event finally that suits me and to win it is incredible. I was ready to win a medal here, but you could see how over the last 100 metres how much I wanted gold and I can't even put into words how I feel. Guy Learmonth also showed some impressive form, finishing second in his heat of the 800 metres in 1 minute 49.15 seconds to qualify for Sunday's final. Another final appearance, eight years after doing the same at Glasgow, is just reward for the 30-year-old, whose 2021 season was almost completely obliterated by the after-effects of Covid. That was a tough heat, he said. A lot of people probably wrote me off with past year I've had, and people have been kicking me when I'm down. But the last four weeks I've got my head together and I've proved there what I can do. In the women's 400 metres, both Nicole Jergen and Zoe Clark made it safely through to the semi-finals. Jergen was first up, finishing third in her heat in 52.52 seconds, while Clark was a shade faster, crossing the line in 51.84 seconds to finish seconds in her heat. 
Both Adam Thomas and Alicia Rees were in action in the 100-metre semi-finals, but neither could progress, with Thomas finishing 7th in his semi in 10.4 seconds, and Rees also finishing 7th in 11.47 seconds. The new Commonwealth Sprint champions are Fernando Omanyala of Kenya, who won the men's title in 10.02 seconds, and Olympian champion Elaine Thompson-Herra, who took gold in 10.95 seconds, with England's Daryl Naita taking bronze. That article was by Susan Avelstaff. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.